Hello, and welcome to In All Things, a podcast of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a global movement of Evangelical Presbyterian Churches. Thank you for joining us. I'm Rachel Joseph. Your host for In All Things is Dean Weaver, Stated Clerk of the EPC. Our prayer is that God uses Dean and his guests to both inform and inspire you about how God is working in and through the EPC. The motto of our family of churches is, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Now, here's Dean. And thank you, Rachel, and thank you, everyone, for joining us again for another edition of In All Things, a weekly podcast of the EPC, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Our guest this week is Bill Crawford. Bill is a teaching elder and the pastor of two congregations in down around the Bayou area of Louisiana, and he has been leading those small congregations for years and has a lot of experience in terms of the challenges that small churches face, particularly in that part of the country where hurricanes happen every so often. And so, uh, Bill, it's a great uh, delight to have you here as a guest on In All Things. Well, Dean, it's good to see you again. My dogs still miss you, so when you come to visit, that'd be wonderful. (laughs) Well, uh, anybody who knows me knows that I probably like dogs more than I like people, and and you extended the hospitality of your home to me when I was there last year to to see what had happened in the hurricane that you had just had, and your pups took good care of me while you guys were gone. Yeah, they're wonderful. I miss (laughs) them even now. Yeah, I get that. I get that. It's probably the hardest thing about this job for me is I'm away from my pups way too much. So, well, we're going to come back and dig into that conversation with Bill in just one second because he's got some great insights, not only about the small church, and we've just recently had a small church summit here at the um, Office of the General Assembly, but also how small churches can make a huge impact in their community and oftentimes it comes in the context of something like disaster relief and so we'll talk about that a little bit more as we've just had another horrible hurricane that has hit southwest florida here recently in hurricane uh, ian we're also we're going to uh, talk a little bit today about the hopes and dreams for the future not just in terms of where are we going by way of disaster relief, or, uh, but where are we going in terms of the small church? There's been a lot of conversation recently. The rising generations are seemingly more interested in smaller churches in many respects than they are kind of the, the, the larger churches, particularly those who are not of the faith. They're more willing to step into a smaller, more intimate fellowship than kind of the, the large environment. And so we're going to talk a little bit about how can the small church, if we're able to help serve and revitalize those congregations, become a real gift for succeeding generations. Before we dig into that conversation, our podcast today is brought to you, interestingly enough, by our small church leadership team and small church network of church plants. Our church planting group led by Tom Ricks, our national director of church plants, is is not only helping regions in the country gather together to plant churches, but most of those churches that they're intending to plant are intending by design to be smaller churches. They're not intending to grow large churches. In fact, many of the church planners I've talked to say when they get to 60, 70, or 80 people, they're thinking about maybe it's time to, to, to launch another a church plant because there's something about that particular size that really creates an intimate 
kind of relational connection which these younger generations are longing for. There's two in particular I would love for you to check out because they're really creative and interesting, and they're both called The Table. The Table EPC Church in Dallas, Texas, and the Table EPC Church in Denver, Colorado. I think they came to the name, the same name, separately from one another. I don't think that they had ever talked to each other about that. But both have this idea that just as Jesus frequently gathered around the table, and many of our small churches know this well. I think one of the one of the great things I loved about that first small church I served in Clymer, Pennsylvania, was there was a sacred recipe for the Monday Thursday soup, and and that was hidden. Like you had to have the secret code to find where that recipe was hidden. But so often we gathered around food and we shared food, and that's something that seems so profoundly biblical. Jesus did it all the time. And so these two particular churches, one in Dallas and one in Denver, are reaching out to people who are completely unchurched with this gift of hospitality expressed around the table. Just a really creative, interesting, and I think profoundly biblical approach to reaching uh, those who don't know the Savior in their community. So if you get the chance, you could just Google search the Table EPC in Dallas or the Table EPC in Denver and learn more about those two church plants, which are small churches intending to focus on building and fostering relationships vis-a-vis hospitality around food. And uh, we're such a food conscious society. We've got food networks and food everything everywhere you look. So anyway, it's a great on-ramp to the gospel. And uh, those are a couple of our small churches that are church plants that you might want to explore and learn more about. Well, with that, let's get back to our guest this week. And Bill, as we dig into this conversation, help us to get to know you a little bit better. Could you give us a little bit of your background, where you're from, and how the Lord called you into ministry, and particularly the churches that he's called you to serve? Thanks, Dane. It's uh, so good to be here. And it is, I'm like bursting with energy from the summit and just all the thoughts coming from years of conversations I've had. So I have been in First Presbyterian Church at Thibodeau for 21 years, approaching my 22nd year. To help everybody know where Thibodeau is. So Thibodeau is southwest of New Orleans, and most people kind of hesitate when I say that because they can't picture southwest of New Orleans. So right. if you think of Louisiana as a boot or a foot, we're in the heel of the toe. And uh, if you look at the map, it'll be very evident where I'm talking about. It's swamp country. It's cypress swamps. Troy from Swamp People lives north of me. (laughs) Uh, So we're way down the bayou, as we say. And uh, so everything in my community is up the bayou, down the bayou. That's how we refer. Uh, There's five bayous in the community. But I, I came to Thibodeau 21 years ago. I was called to small church ministry, felt that very clearly. I interviewed at five small congregations. The church I chose was the smallest of the five. And, and, you know, God's calling on me to go to Thibodeau was very clear. And we've been there ever since. And so very influenced by Eugene Peterson's book, Under the Unpredictable Plant, uh, A Call to Vocational Holiness and the, the uh, Discipline of Stability. Mm. And so from the beginning, had a, had a firm sense of I'm going somewhere and I'm going to stay. Wow. I didn't know what that meant. That is so against the grain for the way most people think about churches these days. I mean, pastors, three years, as I understand, pretty normal. Five to seven years is in range. But this idea of stability, particularly in a small church, and saying, I'm called to go there and stay, that kind of commitment, that kind of faithfulness, that kind of struggle 
has got to be, man, my gosh, that's a whole podcast in and of itself. It, it is. And we'd have to do it anonymously because I couldn't speak <laughs> honestly about everything because everybody would know exactly what I was exactly, saying. Exactly. Um, so been in Thibodeau for 21 years and it's been beautiful. It's been very rich. And then took on the pastorate in Homa about three years ago, three and a half years ago. And Homa is a community about what, 10 about miles About 30 down. minutes away. Yeah. Uh, it makes for an interesting Sunday, but it works well two uh, congregations, one at nine, one at 11. The challenge is trying to develop community. You know, your conversation about fellowship is, is fascinating. I had a conversation in this journey that we're going to be, hopefully have a little bit of time to talk about today that we talk about at the summit of discovery. I, I sat down with an economist trying to think about how to restructure and reformulate the church's outreach. And he was a secularist. He didn't go to church. And the one thing he said is if your church was going to engage with my generation, because he's a younger man, is if you could figure out a way to engage us in fellowship, we're in desperate need of it. We Mm. don't even know it. And that, again, is one of the strengths of the small church, right? It it really can be. It's interesting about incorporating new people in the small church because Mm -hmm. the church is like a family. Oftentimes it is two or three families. And, And so... When a small family comes together, it's hard for anyone else to break in. Right. And so a church, a small congregation in particular, has to be very intentional about that. So we've been... I think the theology of adoption really comes into play there, right? Right. And so what we've been doing is, in in adding to my two services on Sunday in two different locations, is on Sunday nights we have a meal at the house. And I I really am fascinated about the concept of the table, especially Dallas, some of the changes they've been making. You had a podcast about it not too long ago. And I was listening to that going, wow, this is rich. This is right on target with what I've been thinking about in a traditional 175-year-old church. Wow trying to figure out how to adapt to this new world we're living in. Uh, One of my convictions is the small church has experienced a paradigm shift out from under our feet. The world has changed in drastic ways. Could you unpack that a little bit for us? uh, I could. About five years ago, I wrote a letter to leadership saying something's happened. Really? The, The world has changed. What I discovered is and it's really pressure from multiple points. So there's a pressure on the small church from the development of large churches. They're prevalent. They're growing. The fact survey that came out just recently, I, sent, I have an article I'll show you later, shows that more churches are small, but they're not small on purpose. They're small because they've declined. So the average congregation worshiping in America today is 65 people. Mm. They're sitting in a sanctuary designed for 200 people. Wow. That is 80% of churches. Wow. But 70% of Christians go to the 10% of the largest churches. Mm. And so there's this stretch that's going on. So we're getting pressured by a culture that's resisting Christianity, the growth of the nuns, people that don't even bother affiliating with a religious practice. So that's on the secular world side. On the church side, we're experiencing pressure from this development of the megachurch. And then the, the large church, the 300-member church, classically called the Walmartization of the church. What's occurring and what's happening to us right now, I think, and it's been going on for five, five six years dramatically, Walmart created food deserts. We now have grace deserts. Hmm. Could you explain what you mean by that So a small bit? churches are disappearing, particularly traditional churches, also among those being reformed churches, churches that 
teach the doctrines of grace clearly, articulate that. Many Pentecostal churches, the new paradigm churches that are replacing them are works righteousness churches. Mm. And so they are eating up the landscape, so to speak, while at the same time, we're replacing golf balls with basketballs. And so you take buckets of golf balls and you turn them into one basketball. You've reduced surface area and mass at the same time. And so there's a a lack of contact with the communities around us. So the gospel is, is retreating even as we're developing these larger churches. And then the other side of that is these small churches, in my experience, and I think the numbers are going to continue to play this out because a lot of things I've been saying are true, have been proven true over the past few years and people are writing about them. The other thing is I think almost all of my members are introverts. Hmm. I can't explain that. I'm an extreme extrovert. My wife is even more extroverted than I am. But we find that almost every member of our congregation, I, I actually ask, I go out and talk to them, are you an introvert or extrovert? And I ask these questions. They're all introverts. So they are coming to small churches on purpose. You are dialed into something that this next generation, there's an opportunity here to draw them into this community. The problem becomes sustainability. Right. So we have an old model of funding church that's based on 150 people. And these legacy buildings are expensive. And and so we, particularly between Homa and Thibodeau a few years ago, we had a year where we spent $90,000 to have our two facilities. That's half our budget. Well, that can't be sustainable for the long haul. So what what are some of your ideas or thoughts about sustainability? Well, one is to get out of these legacy buildings, which is not easy. Right, because those are the buildings that my, gr- my grandfather built. Well, those are buildings that people suffered to make happen. And yeah. your members who have been a part of that church for many years, maybe some of your more dedicated members may have put $100,000 into that facility themselves personally. Right. And you're going to ask them to give up the building that they baptized their children in, that they saw their children get married in, that they baptized their grandchildren in, that they buried their husband in. Are there, are there other possible usages? Like, could the can the buildings be transformed to be not only a, their worship space, but can they open themselves up to the community to have it become a community asset? Or um, there are many options, and and uh, in fact, there's books written on it now, which is kind of interesting to see that this has developed so far. So we've had two major seminaries now have restructured their facilities and downsized. Um, Gordon Conwell, I believe, is one of those, mm-hmm. and, and so this is going to have to happen. And so we are in Homa leasing our facility to a larger church. They have come in as a church plant from a mother church. They opened up at 300 on day one. Right. And so they are leasing three quarters of our facility and actually squeezing us every day. I've served with a, a smaller church. Now it was an urban church, not a rural church or a small town church. But, and I've seen the home of building and, and it's actually in a community where there's, you know, a number of assets there. Um, but this one church that I worked with, it was a smaller urban church. They had a vision for seeing themselves as kind of a, a ministry incubator. So there were ministries that would come and kind of be housed there for a period of time while they were developing. And maybe when they got to a certain point of sustainability, they might launch out from there. Some stayed for quite some period of time. But is that another kind of hybrid of this where the, the building could be seen as being a, a ministry incubator of sorts? I, I think that's that's true. I, that's not my personal desire because 
I, I think if your congregation has reached that small size, and when I say small, we're talking about very small, so under 50, that's a model that will pay the bills, but it's not a model that I've ever seen a church grow out of. And so it could be a sustaining model, but if we're trying to think about next generation mission and ministry, then what I'm trying to get our two congregations, and we're working on this, and we may not get to the end of this chase, but the, the desire is to have a conversation about these buildings being assets. And so we're sitting on a million dollars of assets that are not being used for trying to do the math in my head, 102 hours a week. No, 162 hours a week, right? 168 hours a week. So they're, they're being used six hours a week total. It, it doesn't make sense in a way. From a business model, there's no business that would do this. Right. And so if you could downsize those facilities, turn those assets into money, then you can begin to think about next generation. So let's talk about uh, at least I, as I think about the facility at Thibodeau, that asset has has been a huge gift to the community, particularly um, when I visited you last year in the terms of the disaster relief that you were doing. It was almost like it was a, a thrift store, a staging center, a place where teams came and stayed and worked out of and were resourced. I mean, that church building was actually in the in the people of that church serving in those spaces. More importantly, were kind of the hub of relief activity in the bayou. And so, the small church is typically a place where everybody's going to get their opportunity to roll up their sleeves and get their hands dirty. You've actually helped a congregation do that in terms of meeting the needs of the people in your own community. That's what it fundamentally means to be missional in terms of disaster relief. So let's pivot a little bit and talk about that because you also, uh, in coming to the small church summit, you also came a little early and went down to visit with some of our brothers and sisters in Southwest Florida and the Fort Myers area because you have a lot of background and experience with that. So talk to us about the small church and how it can meet the needs of a community, particularly disaster relief. And then let's talk a little bit more about that. And and I think the two metaphors uh, work well together. So the small church crisis is a slow rolling crisis and a hurricane is a acute crisis, but they're both storms. And and there's something I think we need to address. And, And so excited to be part of that work with the summit. So in 2001, I had been in Thibodeau just a little while. Two hurricanes came in, and they tend to come in pairs, Isidore and Lily. And I was approached by, at that time, Presbyterian Disaster Assistance and a local organization to see how we could become involved. And that's where it began to churn a little bit with this need to help others with disaster relief. And the recognition was our small church didn't have a lot of able hands and the bodies to go out and do rebuilding and such. And so what could we do? Well, we could provide, again, this word keeps coming up, hospitality, fellowship, you know, working together in this radical hospitality. So we converted our facility into a um, relief facility that could house up to 20 people at a time, 30 people. We had 40 in there once. We built showers, toilets, and everything exterior to the building. And so we opened ourselves up. At the time, it was very manageable, you know. 10, 15 teams a year, and, and we had a, a court group that we were coordinating with, and they provided site management. Well, Katrina happened, and we were on a national website, and all of a sudden, we were getting phone calls from around the world. 
Yeah, that's pretty overwhelming. And, and we had airplanes arriving with shipments for us. And next thing wow. we knew, we had uh, over the course of four months, 48 teams from 40 different states. And the infrastructure of a small church is not equipped to handle all it of was, that. It was crazy. So we, we have always dialed back since then. But the openness is when a disaster happens, the resources need a pivot point to come through. And so we've been able to do that. That's something we do every time a storm happens, sometimes more, sometimes less. For Ida, we were pretty engaged. I mean, the EPC really did pour into us. Um, It was pretty remarkable, and I think we should all be proud of our denomination. It it was an incredible experience to see us get our legs under us for a hurricane season. Well, you guys were Thibodeau and Homa were really kind of like ground zero. And then you had uh, an entire presbytery, which really kind of rallied around you guys. And they've done that before in churches like First Baton Rouge, which had the infrastructure to kind of help the presbytery work with the presbytery to support you. Uh, And then, gosh, we were getting phone calls from all over the denomination, people wanting to either send teams or resources. And so it really was a pretty collaborative effort from the point of contact, which is where you were all the way across the denomination. And then the opportunity then to turn that back around and get to Fort Myers, be embedded in the church. I've slept in the church for the last three nights and um, help them just kind of mostly just tell them how good a job they were doing, to be honest, Dean. Uh, the, the folks down there are, are remarkable. They're doing an incredible job. They're very resilient. Yeah, tell us more about what you saw when you were there because I've get, I'm getting phone calls and people all the time saying, what are we doing in Fort Myers? How can we help? Well, um, New Hope was the church I was most involved in. I did um, talk to Pastor Paul at First Pres as well. And New Hope is just uh, astounding. The, the lay leadership, the pastoral leadership, just remarkable. They are very coordinated. They've already been in over 70 homes. They have already begun to pull out sheetrock and clear out furniture and do the work that needs to be done to get um, the initial relief stage handled. They're well down the road. The community's recovering much quicker than we tend to. Well, they have a lot more resources. It's a larger infrastructure than we have in in the Bayou region. And so I was kind of shocked by how quickly they had uh, the ability to go to Lowe's and buy things. You'll remember where we would go to Lowe's and wait hours. Yeah. I was in and out in 20 minutes the other day to pick up some extra tools, and they actually had the tools I needed, which was not happening during Ida. And so they're doing a great job. They have a lot of work to do. I think financing is going to be a big issue because the number of families. So 70-plus families in that home are approaching total loss. From New Hope Church. From New Hope alone. Yeah. And I think the numbers are very similar at first press. And then you're talking about a community of a million people. The flooding that they experienced, the tidal surge that they encountered was massive. Yeah, I mean, it was a Cat 4 when it came ashore, almost a Cat 5, really. And so, yes, it was a wind event, but but the way Fort Myers sits, Cape Coral, Fort Myers, Sanibel, Captiva, the way that whole area sits against the Gulf. And the thing is, the Gulf there has a very, it's a shelf, really, that is pretty shallow. And so the storm surge, it's just set up for a disaster, the way that happened. Imagine trying to pour a five-gallon bucket through a funnel all at once. Right. And so the the two rivers that make up the uh, bay, come out of the bay in Fort Myers, were a perfect choke point for this storm surge to come up and just explode through the communities. Mm. 
And so many families were in their homes, never flooded before, never had an experience of being even close to flooding, were having to crawl out of windows to leave their house in the middle of the night and move to high ground. And I heard that story more than once of people who were smart people. It was just a tough storm. Well, and a lot of them had been through Charlie, which which actually followed almost the same path in a lot of ways. Where Charlie came ashore on the Gulf Coast, the way it moved across the state, came out on the East Coast. I mean, the, the parallels between Charlie and Ian are, are kind of, you know, everybody's talked about that. But I think the, the folks in Fort Myers who were back in, I think it was 04, maybe when Charlie came through, they said never have they seen something like this. I mean, the water event that this was, was just unparalleled. It, it was astounding. And again, the church is doing a great job. And I think it's important that we remember that this is an opportunity for the church to show Christ. And so one of the ways we show Christ is how we love one another. And they're doing a wonderful job of reaching out to family members. I was working with one of the church members, an elderly woman. I was able to, with my daughter, which was wonderful, uh, to tarp her roof and, and, and to console her and just spend time with her. And a lot of what you're doing in these opportunities is Jesus says, have you given me water before? When you gave water to one of these, you gave water to me. You know, And these, these concepts of of just physically helping one another. When you tarp their roof, you were tarping my roof. Uh, amen. And, and um, you know, so it, it's it's amazing to see that the cheer you bring to another believer by doing a little bit. Yeah. And, and so we were there for three days, and, and, yeah, we worked hard. We didn't do much, but they were encouraged by us being there. So thank you to everyone who helped us and put me in a position to be here to help now. And that really was Part of your giving to us did correlate to me being able to be here now. And, and so as we help the churches there, we're going to be helping Christians. But the, the community sees this. And what's happened in Thibodeau and Lafouche and Terrebonne Parish is the community knows the church shows up. And it's critical. It's, it's an in, important representative of Christ to the, to the world around us, especially in a world that's rejecting Christ. More. It's a powerful expression of incarnation Amen. showing up and being with people particularly in those moments of pain and suffering and struggle and challenge and that's what it is to be the church and uh, i interviewed one of your colleagues uh, suzanne zampella uh, recently about this the small church summit and she said that one of the the great beauties of that was just knowing you're not alone other other pastors who are going through similar issues and struggles just finding out that there are others out there and I got to think that's not just true in the small church, but it's also true for people when they go through these kind of tragedies. Just you're showing up, that incarnational gift of showing up says you're not alone. So I end every worship service with those words. So I believe the, the gospel is God telling Abraham, I will be your God, you will be my people. Jesus says, I will be with you always, low even until the end of the age. And so I close out every week with the, what I believe to be the gospel message. You could say Emmanuel, but I say you are not alone. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, brother. It's been a gift. Thank you for your leadership in the Small Church Summit. Thank you for your leadership in helping us think through how we can best serve and resource what is really a majority of our congregations in the EPC and for being the tangible hands and feet of Christ, driving all the way over from the, the bayou to Southwest Florida just to be present with our people there. And um, it's just been a huge gift. So thank you. And thank you for letting me um, cohabit with your pups whenever I'm at your place. 
Amen. So my friends, if you're interested in getting involved in helping, there's going to be, you know, when it comes to relief, recovery, and rebuilding, there's a, we're going to be probably helping down in the Southwest Florida for years, uh, the same way uh, work continues down in the bayou uh, where Bill is from. If you're interested in either sending teams or particularly what we need right now are financial resources, you can simply go to epc.org slash emergency relief. It's epc.org slash emergency relief. And the thing you can trust is that every dollar that you give or that your congregation gives goes directly to the people on the ground who are making that kind of impact. There's no administrative cost taken out of it. Uh, We have a high degree, the highest degree of accountability where we know exactly what they're spending and how they're spending it. And it goes directly to the local church. We're not a large organization. We could never compete, nor do we desire to, with great organizations like Samaritan's Purse or things like that. We play small ball. And we we work one household at a time with one family at a time, one church at a time. So the resources funnel through the local church in the EPC to make a really significant impact in that community for Christ. So again, it's epc.org slash emergency relief. And that's how you can get online and make your or your church's contribution that could make a huge difference. Even a small church, my friends, can make a huge impact for the gospel. Uh, Bill is a great example of that. And I will tell you in 36 years of pastoral ministry, when I spent time with you down, at, especially at Thibodeau, Homa as well, but Thibodeau especially, I thought to myself, man, this guy was designed to be at this church. You are exactly where you're supposed to be. And there's nothing better than being in the center of God's will, serving people in Jesus name. Amen. 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 Bill mentioned finishing out his time of worship with a benediction. The word benediction, benedictos, means the good word. And the good word that ends our conversation every time we gather in this venue is from Colossians chapter 1. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, All things have been created through him and for him. You see, he is before all things. And in him, that is our Savior Jesus, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. And my friends, he is coming back one day. And when he comes back, I hope that he finds you and me and all of us in the EPC living out the gospel in an incarnational way with our neighbors, particularly those who are in need. Until the next time we gather, in the name of that Savior Jesus, a big grace and peace to you. Thank you again for joining us. On behalf of Dean and the entire team, we hope you will join us for our next episode of In All Things. For more information about the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, including a directory of local churches, online resources, and much more, visit our website at www.epc.org. I'm Rachel Joseph. I pray you have an overwhelming sense of God's presence in all things today.